Welcome to the Prophecy Club. I had an accident playing racquetball last night. I got hit in the face with a racquetball racket and five stitches on the outside and two stitches on the inside and the whole side of my face all swollen. And it looks like a basketball so bad that my staff said, uh, no, don't show them. <laughs> don't show them that face. So here's what I'm going to do. We are going to make an unbelievable offer if I can talk, for the next few days until I can get this down to a reasonable size, and then we'll resume our normal broadcast. So what we're going to do is post up one of the most amazing videos we have on archaeology, and we're going to make four of them free for the month of February. So let me explain. First of all, it's going to be free until February 28th of 2022 at Watch prophecyclub.com. Watch prophecyclub.com. First one is uh, Archaeology Confirms the Bible. Now, the story on this was in 1991. Of course, the video technology was not as good as it is today, but nevertheless, I got a brand new VCR with the best quality videotape that I could get. Leslie and I went on a tour, an archaeology tour with Ron Wyatt, and we got shot some amazing video on this two-week tour, we saw Noah's Ark, Anchor Stone, Sulphur Balls, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the rocket Moses struck, giant bones of pre-flood people, Golgotha. It also has the best talk of Ron explaining how he found the Ark of the Covenant. That's right. The golden chair of God has been found, and he explains it. And when you see this, you won't have any question. You will know he's telling the truth. That's going to be free. Again, for the month of February at WatchProphecyClub.com. The next one is, I came back several years later in 2012. I made this video because I saw that there was so much more I needed to explain. So it's based upon the information I saw on the two-week tour. But I do a good job of explaining Noah's Ark, the crossing side of the Red Sea, Jesus' tomb, many other amazing discoveries, the existence of Noah's Ark, how it has been proven to be a fact and confirms the accuracy of the Bible. See, the devil knows all of this has been found, so he can only present decoys so that people won't find the truth. But these videos will show you the truth. Again, free at WatchProphecyClub.com until February 28th. Free. You can go there and watch all four of these videos at WatchProphecyClub.com. Now, normally it's a $20 a month donation to $200 a year, but you can go watch them free for until February 28th. Now, the one you're about to listen to is uh, one made in April 2004 by Michael Rood. And here he's talking about the Red Sea crossing, the real Mount Sinai, the wilderness journey. Michael takes you into one of the most thrilling archaeological discoveries of modern-day Israel, Michael presents the most recent photographs, video footage, and archaeology uh, artifacts smuggled out of Mount Sinai, smuggled out of Mount uh, Saudi Arabia, and displays a grinding stone from Mount Sinai, which may be used to grind manna to make bread. He also shows Israeli arrowheads that litter the desert of Midian, the intact remains of the altar of the golden calf of Moloch, the rock at Rephidim, which split in half at the blow of Moses' staff, and still evidences the erosion caused by millions of gallons of water pouring from the center of the rock. You'll also see Har Karkum, one of Israel's camping locations, 
during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You also see some of the 40,000 petroglyphs, which the Israelites chiseled in stone to mark their territory, according to God's promise to Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. You will also see underwater high-resolution robotic camera footage of coral encrusted remains of Pharaoh's chariots, including a golden-covered chariot wheel. You'll also see footage of an ancient Torah scroll smuggled out of Iraq just before the fall of Saddam Hussein. Michael shares a new revelation from God on how Zachariah's thermonuclear war fits into the end-time scenario. Four DVDs, all for free, up until February 28th of 2022 at watchprophecyclub.com. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go over and play clips over the next several days until my face heals up <laughs> enough to come and talk before you again. And uh, so here, here's some more clips. Go watch all of this at watchprophecyclub.com. It's for free. Watchprophecyclub.com. Welcome to the Prophecy Club, where we study and research Bible prophecy. We know in the last days, and we believe we are in the last days, that there's going to be an end-time revival. Jeremiah 16, verses 19 through 21 talks about it. And he says that there's going to be an end-time revival. And it's, it talks about, and it says that, This once I shall cause them to know. I shall cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know that my name is Jehovah. Well, how is that going to happen? I believe that a large part of that is going to be archaeology. God, centuries ago, secret away proofs within the earth that absolutely, positively erase all doubt about His truth based upon what He's put in His book, the Bible. Help me welcome your speaker, Michael Rood. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you, Stan. Glad to have you. Thank you. It was four years ago this month that Stan Johnson asked if I would do a tour of the 45 cities of the Prophecy Club. And he made a promise to me. He said that by doing this Prophecy Club venue that I would be able to get my message out to the entire world. And Stan's promise came true. The first video that we filmed, which was done at the Lester Summerall Studios on the great secret of Solomon's temple, detailed how the Messiah, Yeshua, fulfilled the spring feast of the Lord, just as the Israelites had rehearsed these feasts every year for a thousand years, from the time of King Solomon all the way through the destruction of the second temple. And it is in the Feast of the Lord, the Spring Feast of the Lord, that we see the picture of the Messiah as the suffering servant. We also saw that the temple that Solomon built actually had a sand hydraulic elevator system built into the temple in order to hide the Ark of the Covenant in the time of siege. In our first video that we did with the Prophecy Club, we detailed that sand hydraulic elevator system, and we took people into an understanding of the Spring Feast of the Lord, and that video ended up on every continent of the world. Shortly after that, we did a 10-hour series in which we taught for five hours on the Spring Feast of the Lord, five hours on the Fall Feast of the Lord. 
recognizing again that the first four gospels are the detail of how the Messiah fulfilled the spring feast of the Lord, but yet the book of Revelation details how the Messiah fulfills the fall feast of the Lord. And unless we understand the feasts of the Lord, then we cannot understand much of the New Testament. And the book of Revelation will remain an indecipherable time warp continuum to the Western Gentile mind. And so it is in the teaching of that, those tapes, those videos went out all over the world, and even today, four years later, we get letters, we get phone calls from people on other continents all over the world that call us, that write us and tell us that these videos, this teaching on the Feast of the Lord has dramatically changed their lives. And so when Stan asked me six months ago if I would consider doing another Prophecy Club tour, the information that I have to share with you tonight, I believe, is going to shake the world. And that is why I have come from Jerusalem to do this. During this last period of time, we are now in the middle of our third year of living in Jerusalem, where we are now producing one-half-hour television programs, which will be airing on the Sky Angel uh, television network and several other networks around the world. But the reason that we are in Jerusalem is because of that first Prophecy Club video that was done. During the tour, I got a call from Costa Rica asking if I would come down and teach more about the Feast of the Lord to a group of ultra-Orthodox Jews, Lubavitchers. Now, when I received the call, I did recall that in Cleveland, uh, many nights we'd have three, four hundred people in the audience, and there would be three, four rows of black hats, ultra-Orthodox, black hats, payouts, uh, the black coats, and at the end of the meeting they would always come up and ask very respectful questions. And so when I was invited to go to Costa Rica to, to teach, uh, it, it surprised me a little bit, and so I asked them why it was, when I went down there finally, why it was that they wanted to hear more about these feasts of the Lord. And they said that when we watched the video, we could tell within the first 15 minutes that from what you were teaching, that the Christians would finally understand and have respect for the Jewish people. And so that was quite a revelation to me, and so that was the reason why I was down in Costa Rica. But it seems there was another reason because a gentleman who was the professional Spanish voice for Robert Schuller, Jack Hayford, Jack Van Impey, and a number of uh, American evangelists, he was their voice in the Spanish language for the largest Spanish Christian ne television network on the planet. And he saw this video and went to the owners of the network and said, this is a message I've been waiting for my entire life. I am not going to be Robert Schuller's voice anymore. This person, I want to be their voice. And it was from watching that first Prophecy Club video. Roberto Omagna joined us in Israel with Haim Goldman, who is a television producer who the three of us moved to Israel. But before we moved, when we were down in Costa Rica, we were asked if we would produce one-half-hour television programs for the network detailing the Feast of the Lord. Because all of my videos were quite long, they wanted them in one-half-hour blocks, and so we agreed, and we were offered a brand-new television studio, completely equipped, and we said, no, we believe that 
we should go to Israel and film it in Israel. We want to take Israel out to the rest of the world. As the scripture says that the word of the Lord will go out from Zion, his Torah from Jerusalem. And we felt that we should be there. And they said, it's dangerous over there. I guess they've been watching CNN or something. And I, and I said to them that I believe that the safest place for me to be is in the will of God. So we all packed up, we moved to Jerusalem, and after we began our filming, we were about a half year into the first uh, season of filming, and in January it was a very cloudy week, it was snowy, it was rainy, and we can't do any filming, we can't plan on it because we have no idea what the weather is going to look like. But on Sunday morning, January 27th, it was a beautiful Sunday morning in Jerusalem. The birds were singing. The sun was out. It was a lovely day. And Hein Goldman decided that he was going to take a walk. So he left the house, and a couple hours later I thought, well, I'd like to go downtown Jerusalem. It was about a three-mile walk. I thought I'd go down to uh, the Hillel Cafe and get a cup of coffee. So Two hours after Heim left, I left, I went downtown, I hadn't seen him in, in uh, three hours at this point, but as I was walking down Jaffa Street, I remember it was so crowded, the streets were just bustling with people. And as I went down the street, I saw that around this bus stop, there were so many people waiting and so many people coming up the street that I really couldn't even walk on the sidewalk around behind the bus stop. I had to walk out into the first lane of traffic. There wasn't anyone coming, so I stepped out into, into the street. I walked around the uh, bus stop, and just as I got around it and started to step up onto the curb, right directly in front of me at Jaffa 50 was a shoe store that had Naot sandals. Now, when I saw that, I remembered that a couple days before, Haim said that he needed to get his Naot Israeli sandals resold. And so it caught my eye, and as I stepped in toward the front of the building, and I took about four more steps, and as I looked into the front window of the store, as I was still walking, the entire front of the store just dissolved in front of me as a fireball went past and blew the entire front of the store out. A cloud of black soot and smoke completely covered over me, and the smell of burning flesh and burning hair filled my nostrils. And as the smoke cleared, I looked to my left, and just about 15 feet away, there was a man in the street with the pants shredded from his legs. Both of his legs were blown off, and his right arm was blown off, and just the stubble of his arm remained, and it was on fire, and he flailed for just a second, and wham, he was out. He was dead. I looked back. And I looked at myself, and I saw that I was all there, but I was deafened from the concussion. I could hear the muted screams of people, but I couldn't hear anything else. And then I heard a voice very clearly, very calmly, very distinctly, you are here to help. I looked to my left, and a young woman's head was laying at my feet. I'm beyond her, arms and legs laying in the street, and I knew there was nothing I could do to help her or the man that lost both of his legs and his arm just a few feet away. 
but I looked on past her, and an Israeli soldier was blown to his back, his pants were melted up past his knees, his hair and his beard were gone, but just the stubble was smoking, he was covered with blood, and he started to struggle, and so I leaped over the woman's head, I got down on my knees, just as he started to struggle to get out, and he looked at me, and he said in English, which surprised me, am I hurt? And I set him up the rest of the way, and I ran my hands over the front and over the back of him, and took his right hand, and I placed it over a gash above his right eye, and I said, keep pressure on this. You've got a cut above your right eye, but you're okay. You're going to be okay. This is not your blood. And right now, we are fractions of a second into this whole incident, and I pointed to my left at an M16 that was about six feet away, and I said to him, is that your rifle? Now this rifle had the military nylon shoulder strap just shredded from it. And any of you who have been in the military know what kind of pressure it takes to shred a nylon shoulder strap. He said, when I asked if that was his, his weapon, his M16, he said, yes. I said, I'm going to get it for you. I stayed on my knees and I crawled on the ground and got the strap by my thumb and forefinger and I dragged it over to his side. I flipped it over and checked the magazine and safety. It was ready to go and I said, I'm a U.S. Marine. If anything happens, I'll handle your weapon for you, okay? And he said, okay. Now, fortunately, I didn't have to explain that I'm a fat, old U.S. Marine. <laughs> U.S. Marine just seemed to suffice at that moment because you know, I have four daughters, and from when they were quite young, I always told them, if anything bad happens, if anything bad goes down, do not be like MacGyver. Don't try to do something fancy with a match and some hairspray and try to blow up a city block. Just get the gun. You know, if something bad goes down, the good guys are the ones that need the guns. And so when I pulled it over to his side, I wanted to be ready because I have no idea what's going on at this time. I just know that there are arms and legs and dead people all around me. And right then, a gentleman came running across four lanes of traffic which were just dead stopped. The windows of buses and of vehicles were blown out. Across four lanes of traffic in each way, for a hundred feet, all of the storefronts were completely blown away. Behind me, for a hundred feet in each direction, the front of the stores were gone. In the next few minutes, 105 people are going to go to the hospital. Some of them not all intact. And just as this gentleman ran across the street, I saw he was wearing a white smock. He spoke to me in English, which indicated that he was probably a pharmacist. And he got over to this gentleman that I was helping that was covered in blood, and he asked me about him, and so I, I told him very quickly what the situation was, and so he began to attend this gentleman's wounds. I then swung around to the back, and another Israeli soldier whose pants were torn from his legs, his hair and his beard were smoking, and he had body pieces and blood all over the front of him, and two other Israelis got to him immediately. I swung to my left, and a, a, a young woman was entangled in a bunch of wires that were blown down from a concrete pillar, and she was tangled up in them, and I, see, I could see that she could not get through them. And so I got up, and I went over, and I, as I approached, I could see that her pupils were completely dilated. She had no color in her eyes. 
and I assumed that she was blinded from the concussion because she couldn't see her way through this tangled web that had been blown down from the building. I grabbed her by the shoulders and I said, can you see me, are you okay? And she said, my husband, I have to get to my husband, he's waiting for me right over there. And I looked down and under her rib cage, her sweater was being soaked with blood. And I looked down and protruding out of her thigh was a piece of plate glass about that square sticking squarely out of the front of her leg and that was also tangled up in these wires. And so I held her very firmly and I said, you have some wounds, you're going to be okay, but you need to stay right here, you can't move. And she said, no, I have to get to my husband. My husband's waiting for me. And I said, no, and I forcibly held her. I said, no, you cannot move. I know she's in shock. I said, you can't move. Your husband will come to you. And right then, she looked over my shoulder at the man in the street with both of his legs blown away, his arm was gone. She looked at him and she screamed out, my husband, my husband, that's my husband. And I took her head and I buried it in my chest. I said, Lord, Lord, show me how to comfort her. I don't know what to do. Right then a young Jewish girl came up from behind and she said, is she hurt? Is she okay? And I said, she's got some wounds, but that is her husband. She looked at the man in the street and then came over and wrapped her arms around her sister. I stepped aside. The screaming has died down. There are police that are now rushing into the area. The sirens are blaring. And as I look around, I see that the living are being taken care of. And as I step back, I realize that this young woman's head laying on the ground is right in the evacuation path where the ambulances, the stretchers need to come in. And so I go over, I reach down, I pick up this young woman's head and I put it in my arms and and I look around and there's a piece of a blue banner that was blown down from the building and I went and got the banner and I wrapped her head up as, as best I could and I just imagined as I was holding this woman's head in my hands that this is a, a young Jewish mother with her children in school, her husband's at work and, and on this beautiful Sunday morning they, they, it'll be hours before they know that their wife, that their mother is dead. And this is all that I can think of as I had this woman's head in my hands. And I looked for a place to put it down and I decided to go over and put it by a concrete pillar that's a little bit out of the way. And then I stepped back and I realized I just can't leave her head there because when they begin to clean up, when someone picks up that banner, then they're going to see that head and, and it just can't be treated like this. So. As the Israeli police were coming in, I got a hold of a senior officer and I said, I wrapped up a woman's head and I put her head over by that pillar. And the, the officer said, Lo mavin anglit, I don't understand English. And for the life of me, I couldn't think of uh, you know, the head of a woman, Rosh Isha, to, to save my life at that moment. I was a little bit uh, uh, shaken by this thing. And, and so I said it very slowly, and then I gestured, and then I could tell by the look on his face he, when he said, head of a woman? I said, yes. I could tell that he then understood. And he shook his head, and then I stepped back. I knew then as the stretchers were coming in, as the ambulances were pulling up from both directions, it's just time for me to leave. 
And so I walk away, I get about a block away, and I stop and I realize I better take a closer look at myself. And I looked down at my sandaled feet, the same sandals that I'm wearing now, and, and looked at me, and, you know, I had little pieces of flesh and, and blood all over the front of me, and I held out my hands, and it surprised me. I was rock steady. I didn't even have an adrenaline rush going on. I then walked the three miles back to the apartment, which was a long, long walk. Because it's hard having to relive that, that moment, those, the, that time in which all this happened and holding that woman's head in my hands, I just kept reliving it with every step and it was so hard to make that walk back. And when I got back to the apartment, I looked up the fourth story, that's where the apartment was, and I saw Roberto, our Spanish producer from Costa Rica, looking out the window at me, and he disappeared when he saw me. I climbed the stairs, got to the door, and he opened the door and said very, very calmly, he said, Haim is okay, but he's at the hospital. He has a piece of glass shrapnel in his forehead from a bomb that went off downtown Jerusalem. And I raised my hands, which are covered in blood, and I said, I know, I was there. But I hadn't seen Haim in over three hours. How is it that Haim was involved in this? I took my clothes off, asked Roberto to get them down to the dry cleaners. We just had to get them out of the house. The smell of that, that, that burning flesh was just, just nauseating. And as he took them out of the apartment, I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and there was not a single hair on my head that was singed. See, when we found out what happened later that afternoon, Heim came back from the hospital and his fiance was getting ready to board a plane the next morning in Miami to fly to Israel for them to become betrothed and for them to start their life and their family in Jerusalem. So this is a very sobering moment at this point, that he's going to bring the woman that he loves over to Israel, and he has just gone through this and seen these same things. And we began then to relate our stories back to each other, and we found out then what happened. Because that morning, Heim was walking down Jaffa Street, and as he went by the front of Jaffa 50, the shoe store, he saw a sign for now sandals. Knowing that he needed to have his sandals resold, he went in and spoke to the gentleman who was the store owner, and he was standing in the store when a young woman brought in a bag she set it on the floor, she took a few steps back, and the cashier said, excuse me, can I help you? She flustered, she picked up the bag and walked out the door just as I passed. I took four more steps, and on my fourth step, I was squarely on the other side of a 16-inch wide concrete pillar. She took four more steps and the bomb went off. And the entire blast blew completely past me, blew the entire front of the store in, and on the other side of a solid wood wall, that is where that glass shrapnel went through and cut Heim in the forehead. Heim immediately began to assist the wounded on the inside. You know, if that morning, a 
if I were praying that morning and I heard a voice from heaven, rude, rude, that's what he calls me. He, <laughs> he knows how I act. He knows my name. I want you to walk downtown Jerusalem today, and I am going to blow up the largest bomb that's ever been blown up by a terrorist in downtown Jerusalem just a few feet away from you. So Leslie Johnson, I'm a prophecy student. Why should I come to your Train the Prophets? The reason you want to come to train the prophets is because you want to do more work for God. You want to be trained and equipped. And this is a safe place to come. You'll be able to prophesy more accurately. You'll know how to lay hands on the sick. They shall recover. But you're going to also know how to hear the voice of the Lord and be more accurate and understand he is speaking. That's why you want to come to train the prophets. Go to traintheprophets.com. These days, emergency food is mostly sold out, but... HeavensHarvest.com has all sorts of emergency supplies and food in stock. Their food comes in square stackable buckets, breakfast, entree, protein, fruits and vegetables. I recommend you have at least 12 months of food for each person in your family. Receive a free box of heirloom seeds when you enter the promo code STAN at HeavensHarvest.com. Promo code STAN. Terry Sock is a prophecy student, and he reads his King James Bible, and he believes in winning souls so much he is supporting the Prophecy Club so that we can win more souls. So if you want to support someone that loves prophecy and wants to win souls, I'm going to send you to cornerstoneassetmetals.com where you can get all sorts of precious metals, gold, silver, rhodium, palladium, and things like that. cornerstoneassetmetals.com Click like, share, subscribe, and send to a friend.